0: Well, we can turn back to the passage we read there in Ephesians chapter 5, and we can look at it uh, together. As we've noticed um, in previous um, uh, sermons on this uh, particular book, um, Paul is quite keen on walking, and he, um, especially since start of chapter 4, he has been using this image of walking. As he says there in 4 verse 1, uh, they are to walk uh, worthy of the Lord, and then in verse 17, they are not to walk as the Gentiles do. And then in chapter five and verse two they are to walk in love. And then in verse fifteen, they sorry in in verse <coughs> in nine they are to walk as children of light. And then in verse thirteen, they are to look carefully how they walk. So obviously he's um Concerned about how uh, God's people uh, behave. And of course, uh, the image of walking uh, implies they're going somewhere, Uh, as travelling to a destination. And we know what the destination is it's um, getting to heaven. But the road to heaven is never straightforward. And there are all kinds of um, issues uh, that may arise as they uh, travel along. And uh, Paul deals with uh, various ones. But here in the section that we read, um, he talks about speech. What we speak about when we Travel. It's the use of the the tongue is a a very prominent um, feature in the New Testament. And probably, if we were asked uh, to name a passage that deals with it, our minds might um, jump to what James says about the tongue, about the tongue being uh, a like a fire, which you can't put out, or being like poison, which is deadly and lethal if it says the wrong things. And it's not only uh, uh, James that speaks about the use of words. All the New Testament writers refer to them. It's quite a challenge, I think, when we um, just think about what we say. I mean, in reality, although sometimes parrots can be taught to say words, I mean, humans are the only creatures that can speak. So there's a certain sense in which the ability to speak as part of the image of God. And uh, we can um, either use our tongues uh, for what's good, or we can use it for what is bad. And given the, the attention that Paul um, speaks about it here, or writes about it here, um, he obviously thought it was a problem, perhaps even in the church in Ephesus. And of course, he would have known about the church in Ephesus because he was there uh, for quite a prolonged period uh, earlier on in his ministry. And in the section that we read, he, verses what, 3 to 15, he tells them, what not to say, what they are not to say either to themselves or to anyone else. And then from verses 17 to 21, he talks about what they should say as they walk along. I mean, uh, in the past, it was very difficult to walk alone because walking was the only way of getting around, unless you were wealthy enough to have a horse or something. Um, you just had to walk everywhere, but you would never be walking by yourself. There would always be loads of other people around just for, with whom you could have a conversation. And they would speak to you about what interested them, and Paul says that we should speak about what interests us in verses 17 and to 21. So what are we not to say in verses 3 to 16? Well, I suppose Paul could have uh, highlighted many topics about which it would be inappropriate For these um, believers uh, to speak about. But uh, the two he selects, um, well one of them may be quite obvious to us and we wouldn't be surprised at him saying don't speak about that and that of course is immorality. He just points out there in verse 3 that sexual immorality must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. I mean, there are certain things that saints shouldn't speak about, and, and that is one of them immorality. And we, um, I suppose, we understand that automatically. Although he does um, enlarge on it a bit in verse uh, 4, where he indicates or points out certain ways in which that kind of conversation can be used, like with um, filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. And he just says that these kind of things are out of place for uh, Christians. It should just never happen in any form at all. And as I say, we might not be too surprised at that, because that seems to be an obvious thing that is unsuitable. But the other one that he chooses, well it's a bit more, I would suggest, a bit more startling. Because (coughs) the assumption is that he is talking about the things that are equally dangerous. And what can be equally dangerous uh, with sexual immorality? And the answer to that is covetousness. And he says quite a bit about um, covetousness in these verses. Now we may wonder why Paul um, mentions covetousness. Uh, We know he was uh, guided by the Holy Spirit to do so. But there's also reasons for him doing so. And uh, one um, reason for him doing so could be his own experience. Because when we turn to Romans 7, um, in which Paul lays bare his inner heart, the sin that really struck him personally was covetousness. It's almost there in Romans 7 it's as if he's um, running the eye of his heart down the Ten Commandments. I mean, number one, yeah, I've done that. This is being, of course, quite inaccurate, but I think it's the point that Paul's making. Number one, well, he had tried to do that, loved God with all his heart and soul and mind, and he hadn't engaged in idolatry, and he, hadn't, he had tried to keep the Sabbath, and he had tried to be a good child, and he hadn't killed anybody, and he hadn't stolen, and so on. But when he got to the last commandment, he realized that that's the kind of man he was. He was a covetous man. He says, he read, You shall not covet, sin revived, and I died. There was something in Paul, he's indicating by his own words, that made him realize that covetousness was a real danger. And of course, Cavetousness can cover lots of areas, can't it? I mean, a person can be covetous in a material way. They, they just have to continually get things. It doesn't matter what they are. If they could get a new computer yesterday and they see an advert today. And therefore tomorrow they feel compelled to to get the new thing, and they're not satisfied with what they have. And that, that can happen in any kind of um, um, object. People can just be so focused on it that they're not satisfied until they get it, and yet when they do get it, they're not satisfied either because it's inevitable that something better will come along. So there can be a covetousness for possession, But there, there can also be a covetousness for place. It's fairly easy for people to say, well, they can never be number one. And they know it's highly unlikely they'll get to the top of the tree. But they might not be content with where they are on the tree. And they are constantly wanting more. And it's quite difficult at times to to distinguish between covetousness and aspiration, isn't it? And part of the difficulty, of course, is the motives. Why do we want something? Why do we want a certain place? And Paul here is indicating that covetousness is the equivalent of idolatry. And what is idolatry? Well, idolatry is giving to something, the place that God should have. There's literal idolatry where somebody worships an idol, and it's obvious in that situation that the individual is giving to that idol the place that God should have. But any covetousness um, takes the place of God, doesn't it? I suppose it would be an interesting experiment to write down what our mind thinks about. Just, just to do that and to be uh, rigid in doing it and to write down, just take, decide 11 o'clock tomorrow morning, I'm going to write down everything I think about in the next hour. And I suppose it is possible for us, for that particular hour, uh, just to force ourselves to not, not think about the things we'd normally have thought about. But as a man thinks in his heart, so is he, and whatever fills our minds, that's what we worship. doesn't matter what it is, it's an obsession takes the place of God in the heart and I think we're all prone to it one way or another and it's something we have to watch covetousness is an inner sin that breaks all the other nine commandments when we think about it covetousness and go after anything you can run through the commandments and just see it takes God off his throne it takes use of our time fourth commandment what do we think about on Sabbath Sundays family life Commandment number five, covetousness can lead to murder, can lead to hatred, can't it? And covetousness, well, people grab to try and get the things they want. And they're quite liable to bear false witness against their neighbor, if it can increase their own stature. So covetousness is a serious thing. and Paul here points out some ways in which it is serious. And he says, for example, it reveals our our future, where we are going. There he points it out in verse um, 5. Every man who is sexually everyone sorry who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I think it's easy for us to accept that the first category, the person who is immoral has no place in the kingdom of Christ and God. But it's a bit harder when Paul says that envious covetous has no place in the kingdom of Christ and God. And Paul, I think, is saying to the Ephesians, think about yourselves. is a sign. A covetous spirit is a sign that a person is not in the kingdom of God. And that's very solemn. It's also very challenging in our 21st century consumer culture. So, Paul says, it's it's an indication of the future, where a person's going. But it's also an indication of what might happen in the present. Because he points out that because people are covetous, it's one of the reasons the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, there's lots of reasons around today why we might think God's judgment should come. And no doubt we have spoken about that numerous times with friends and others. We live in a society, we might say uh, to other people, that's almost certain to receive divine judgment. But Paul here says that one of the reasons why judgment might come upon the sons of disobedience is covetousness, which makes it into a very serious sin. It's not just a little flaw in my personality makeup, but it's something that really displeases God and therefore it is something that um, we should um, be careful about. Now, he um, points out that as we're out for a walk and um, we come into a dark room and in the dark room people are expressing They're talking and they're expressing their interests and their interests, as Paul suggests, are connected to sexual immorality or covetousness. That's a dark room in his illustration, but in walks a Christian. They walk as children of light and they walk into this dark room. And what happens when you switch a light on? Well, we know what happens when you switch a light on. That uh, the, everything becomes visible. And Paul is, I think Paul is there saying something quite striking. He's indicating what the effect of a Christian should be in company. I mean, there's people, and they're having their conversation. And they might be laughing, because there's, as he puts himself, there's crude joking. And they may be just saying things that are daft, foolish talking. And they are just having their conversation. And then walks, as says Paul in his illustration, children of light. And automatically their presence highlights the difference. That is rather challenging, isn't it? He says there in verse eleven Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So a Christian, one Christian, comes into an everyday situation and immediately his his or her presence shows what life is all about. They walk into the room, the others pick up by their conversation that they are not immoral, But they should also pick up that they are not capitals. And I suppose that is quite challenging. What does Paul expect them to say when they walk into the room? Well, he tells us there in verse 14. quotes from the Old Testament, but he's giving them the ideas that they should say as they walk into the previous dark room. And he says to them, what they should say is, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Imagine saying that in a room where people are talking about immorality and covetousness. It sounds really odd, rather startling. There's these people and they're having their conversation about sinful things and instead the Christian says to them, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I'm trying to imagine that conversation taking place. And what would be the effect? The people having their conversation about their normal topics, Well, I suppose they might be curious about this strange statement, or they might be angry, or they might be indifferent, but Paul's um, instruction of course is, it has to be said. when anything is exposed by the light, he says, it becomes visible. So a Christian, I suppose, is meant to show by his or her conversation that they're not interested in the things that interest everyday life. I have to ask myself, of course, when did I last say something in a room where this alternative conversation was going on, where I said something that pointed to a better world, that indicated there's more to life than immorality and covetousness, because covetousness is everywhere, and Paul says, as you walk through this world, expose the errors of what people speak about. Show them that we don't take any part in the unfruitful works of darkness. For it is shameful to speak of the things that are done in secret. So that's what not to say. Where to, um, as he says there in verse 15, We are to make the best use of time and we are to value every moment and um, therefore we have to take the opportunities to speak correctly (coughs) in every situation we find ourselves because we have to do it carefully and we have to make the best use of it. And therefore we have to ask ourselves, what's the best thing I can say in the situation I am currently in? So that's Paul. He tells us there in verse 17 that we're not to be foolish but we're to understand what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of the Lord? Well, he goes on to tell us in the second half of this section, in verses 17 and 21, the will of the Lord is to be filled with the Spirit. He makes a contrast, a common contrast that we know between a person who gets drunk, and a person who is filled with the Spirit. And lots of suggestions have been made why Paul uses this comparison. One is that uh, even if a person who has drunk too much wine is exuberant, then to be filled with the Spirit means to be exuberant and joyful and energetic, and there may be that might be in it. But um, Paul is more concerned about what the filling of the Spirit does to the way we speak. Because, as he says there in um, following verse um, uh, 18, where we're told to be filled with the Spirit, he uses four adverbs describing what a person filled with the Spirit looks like. And um, I say in passing about being filled with the Spirit that it's, it's a command. It's an imperative. Paul is not saying, I think you should be filled with the Spirit. He's actually stating, be filled with the Spirit. And it's also a present tense. So, it basically means keep on being filled with the Spirit. It's not something that we are to um, flit in and out of, but we are to keep on being filled with the Spirit all the time. And it's also a passive verb, which means that we're not the ones that do the filling. It's not as if we Go somewhere and try and find the Spirit, and then some or other that we guide Him into what He should be doing. But rather, since it's a passive verb, it indicates that the Holy Spirit in this relationship continually takes the leading role, the initiative in life. And since we're talking about speaking? How do we know that the Holy Spirit is taking the initiative in our talking? Now Paul there mentions four things, I just want to think about each of them uh, briefly. The adverbs there to address one another in Psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, that's the first one. Addressing, And the second one is singing, singing and making melodies to the Lord with all your heart. And the third one is giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fourth one is submitting to one another in the, out of reverence to Christ. So a person who is filled with the spirit will be addressing one another, singing with one another, giving thanks, with and for one another, and submitting to one another. And that's quite a demanding set of four ways of speaking. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Well... What are psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? The word spiritual here in the, in the phrase, well, it comes at the end of it. So it could refer, refer to the word songs, as is indicated here, but it could also describe the whole three. Psalms, hymns, and songs that are spiritual. And I think the word uh, spiritual refers to the Holy Spirit. So it would be a bit odd, because we know what the Psalms are, and we know that the songs are spiritual, It's so it be a bit odd if the hymns were not of the same level as well. So I think Paul here is speaking about the book of Psalms. I don't think he's talking about public worship. I think he's talking about what we speak as we make our way out for our walks and doing things like that. I think his reference in Colossians, where he says virtually the same thing, does refer to public worship. But I think this one here, he's just talking about daily life. What do you say on Monday morning when you meet somebody? And what do you say on Wednesday afternoon when you meet them? And we might say to ourselves, well, why does he pick on psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Well, we have to remember in these days of the early church, people had no Bibles. They couldn't walk around with a copy of the Old Testament in their hands. And most of the New Testament had not yet been written by the time that Paul uh, made this statement. And I also think that uh, the Psalms would have been what had been memorized. And therefore, because the Psalms are they're full of Christian experience. And, and as the, the Christians meet each other, are they, are they going to talk about Are they going to talk about something immoral or are they going to talk about something that's going to help them as they share their experiences with one another? And therefore he's indicating, isn't he, that it should be spontaneous. There shouldn't, shouldn't be this, oh, here comes another Christian, I'll have to think of something to say to him. But there, there should be some kind of spontaneity. It just comes out. He might want to speak about Psalm 23, or Psalm 51, or Psalm 100, or Psalm 67, or, or whatever one. And and. Just imagine what would happen if, if that took place. And sometimes, because they are linked together, as you address one another, you'll actually want to start singing it, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. What a vastly different way of conversing! Compared to the ones who are described in the previous half of the chapter, there's a constancy of spiritual conversation, and sometimes so overpowering that it flows out from the heart in joyful celebration. to challenge myself and yourself. What did you say when you last met a Christian? What came out in your conversation? So these two things, well, we speak about from the heart, what's in the heart comes out, it's just inevitable. And What comes out of the heart should lead to praise, earnest praise, delightful praise, commending praise reminding one another of who our God is and of his great salvation and of the way he can deal with us in daily life. You know, it's a sin to be silent. It's a sin to be silent and not say, Something edifying. So there's addressing and there is singing. I read um, the statement, in a commentary by William Hendrickson about the difference that there should be in singing. And Hendrickson, Hendrickson told this story of a director speaking to a soloist. And he said, the director said to the soloist, Daughter, do you know that your Redeemer lives? I assume she was singing, I know that my Redeemer lives. So he asked her, do you know that your Redeemer lives? She replied, yes. He commented, then sing it again and this time tell us about it. It is possible to sing something and say nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. Well, what do we say when we say that? We can sing it. Well, we've sung it five million times before. But we should sing it as if it was the first time. And there's lots of other options. But when we speak, And when we sing, we have to convey the message. Tell it. And then there's the third one. We'll be finished in a minute. But then there's the third one. Thankful for providence. Because that's what Paul says there in verse 20. Giving thanks always. So that takes 24 hours a day, basically. Give thanks always and for everything. To God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I suppose the theological word that would be used to describe for everything is providence. It's it's actually impossible to understand everything, isn't it? There's no one anywhere that understands everything. But that doesn't mean that we can't thank God for providence. That in the world in which we're in, in all the chaos and the sin and the danger and the dilemmas and the difficulties and the trials and all we name it. In all of it, there's someone behind it all, above it all, in charge of it all, and we have no idea how what's happening at 5 past 7 fits in with what's happening at 25 to 8. But God does. And both these experiences at 5 past 7 and 25 to 8, well, they might seem to us to be so distinct and with no connection. But there's a God of providence. And in our confused world, our dangerous world, where people are apprehensive of what's round the corner, where we meet one another, we're to express our gratitude to the God of Providence. Doesn't mean we understand Providence, no one does. But we have to say gratefully. God is there and nothing is out of control even though everything looks out of control and that's a sign of being filled with the spirit we speak to each other from the scriptures we sing if the opportunity allows it from the heart. And we give thanks. We are meant to be grateful people. Grateful to the God of salvation. And then there's the fourth thing, which is the exact opposite of cavatine. The fourth thing is to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Covetousness is always I want. Submitting to one another is the opposite, isn't it? What do you want? And the reason why we submit to one another is because we revere Christ. He's number one. I submit, or I should submit, to another Christian because Christ is working in their life. doesn't mean we do something that's wrong. but it does mean that each of us makes ourselves the servants of others. Because that's what submitting means. So Paul says there, as we close, in a world dominated by wrong conversations, we are to speak differently. We are to speak as those who are filled with the Spirit. And those who are filled with the Spirit say something. They address one another from the scriptures. Their hearts are happy because they know the Lord. And they're thankful too that there's a throne. a throne in which God reigns. And they're glad as well to prefer one another above themselves, honouring them because of Christ. And I suspect when people do that, they are a very happy people. Because without covetousness, There's no competition, but everyone is living for one another. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks.